This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Imogen Crimp, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, Imogen is a British-born author. Um, She was born in 1989 and lives and works in London. She studied English at Cambridge University and completed a Master's of Arts focusing on female modernist writers at UCL. Her debut book, A Very Nice Girl, is about the relationship and power dynamics between struggling young singer Anna and an older man, a financier, Max. Uh, it's a delicate subject, isn't it? Um, it is, yeah. It, it is. It is a very delicate subject. And actually, um, I I came up with the idea for the novel in October 2017, and then I think maybe two weeks later, the Me Too movement started hitting hitting the press, and that really made me. I mean, in the light of that, I had to rethink a little bit some of some of what I was doing, um, and actually, kind of in my original conception of the novel. I'd made Max a much more kind of objectively bad black and white character. Um, and Anna was much more a kind of victim type character. It just, it just wasn't working. Um, and then I really, you know, I really thought about that again. And I I tried to, I was trying to create something, I suppose, quite, quite complicated. Um, so I wanted to show the kind of um, the messiness of, of some of these relationships, the kind of grey areas in them. And there's a lot of grey areas in them, isn't there? I want to talk, because you're very young, and I want to talk about how you came to writing, because you mm-hmm. yourself are an artist and a performer, is that right? Yes, that's right. So when I left university, I briefly went to music college and I studied singing. Um, but actually, before that, so when I was a child, when I was a teenager, I always wanted to be a writer. That was my absolute ambition. Um, you know, I was one of these children who spent my life scribbling stories. And then when I went to university, um, I was quite young. So I started university when I just turned 18. And I found it all pretty intimidating um, and pretty overwhelming. And there were a lot of people around me who wanted to be writers who'd done a lot more writing than me. And I just totally stopped writing. So I didn't write at all when I was at university. And I decided to go and study singing. Um, I'd done a lot of music. So I'd studied uh, the violin and also singing when I was a teenager. I'd done like a Saturday conservatoire in London. And then at university, I was a choral scholar. Um, So I decided I'd go and do singing. And it was a bit, I mean, it it was a slightly strange choice in a way because I decided that I wanted to be an opera singer. Um, But I actually didn't know a huge amount about opera at all. Um, So I'd sung some arias like in my lessons and stuff, um, but I'd never actually seen an opera. 
But, yeah. you know, also there is, I think there's a thread there. I mean, if you talk about opera singing and writing fiction, it's storytelling, isn't it? Exactly. And I think that was one of the things yeah. that drew me to it. That was one of the things, one of the reasons I thought that it was really, it was really appealed to me you know, when I was learning. So my first instrument was the violin, but it didn't have that text and story element. So it kind of interested me a little bit less, I guess. It engaged me emotionally a little bit less. So, yeah, I went, I went and studied I studied singing for a little bit. Um, I never got on particularly well in that world, I have to say. Um, so I found, I mean, I found the world, the conservatoire world just so kind of cutthroat and competitive. Um, and by the time I got there, because, you know, I'd done an undergraduate degree in English, I already felt, I mean, I, I was already quite behind everyone else vocally, I think, but I also just, you know, didn't, didn't really, just didn't really understand the world of it that much. And, I found the performing element of it quite frightening as well. So I think just generally I wasn't, I wasn't especially cut out for it. And I decided in kind of my mid-20s to go to go back to university. That's when I went and did a master's. And I did that because, you know, I, I remembered how much I'd loved, I'd loved reading and loved writing. And actually, in that period when I was singing, I barely read at all. Um, I think just because I'd kind of, you know, decided I wasn't going to write anymore. I just cut myself off from that world totally. And then in my mid-20s, I decided I wanted to explore it again. So I went back and I did a master's and I started reading again. And that was when I that was when I started writing as well. I guess when you're looking at the difference between singing, I mean, singing often is in, you know, it's with people around you. It's more social uh, in a way, whereas writing is quite solitary, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, that's that's a major difference between them. I mean, I suppose that the the element that is similar is that like when you're a singer, yes, you are working with other people if you're doing opera, you are rehearsing with other people, you're working with a teacher and all of that kind of thing. Um, but so much of it is actually practicing by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a skill, that was a discipline that I have just had had instilled in me since I was a child because I did so much music. It's the kind of it's the core of music learning, being by yourself in a practice room and, and working until until it's right. And I think that 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 is something. I mean, I'm really grateful for now um, when it comes to writing because I think that if I hadn't had that kind of rigorous musical training, I probably would have thought that I could be a writer without practicing writing, or that you know writing was just something that sat you sat down and it happened and it came out fully formed. Whereas I kind of I learned from the musical world that actually. You know, so much of creativity is discipline and hard work and practice. Yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, I think it with writing as well. You know, sometimes people talk to me about writing. <clears throat> I'm not a writer myself, and but they'll say to me, you know, I've, I've dabbled and I think I've got a bit of fiction, and I'll say, have you written before? No. And I think, well, <laughs> that's it's highly unlikely that you're going to get it right the first time. It's, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> it is absolutely. And actually, I um I wrote an entire other book before a very nice girl. Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so that's what I, when I when I started my masters, I wrote I wrote another book that I kind of bashed out, um, <laughs> and nothing happened with it, which I'm very glad of now. Yeah. Um, but you know, it taught me so much about writing. Yeah, and what I needed to what I needed to work on, and what it took to write a novel, and I think a lot actually a lot of the problem when I was younger, you know, when I was 18 and I stopped writing was that I was kind of crippled with that idea that everything I wrote had to be perfect. Yes. And, you know, yeah, that's another thing as well, isn't it? I want to yeah. talk about the inspiration of writing, the inspiration of story, because this is, 
you know, I know you started writing it before it was topical, but it has been topical for a long time, the relationship between men and women and the age factor and the power factor. <laughs> and, of course, then Me Too came along. Was it something that you had experienced? Was it something that you drew on? Or was it something that a topic that you were particularly interested in? Where did the inspiration uh, come from? I think that's a, that's a good question. You know, like... <laughs> It's funny because I didn't realise this consciously at the time, um, but um, when I started writing this novel, I was actually in a relationship with a banker um, who was very, very different to the character in the book. Course, but I think yeah. I, I think I was thinking a lot at the time because I, I was teaching and I uh, was so I was teaching for time in a school, but I was also doing like private teaching. I had quite a precarious financial situation because I was trying to write. And I, yeah, I suppose I, I was thinking a lot about like money in particular, the way that like uh, financial disparities in relationships affect power dynamics between people and the way that uh, having, being with a partner who's much, who has much more money than you and, and so has a, like a particular type of power in the relationship influences the way that you feel about the thing that you're doing your like your work and your kind of relative position in the relationship so in a sense yeah that was that that sort of came from personal experience certainly yeah it was something I was, I was thinking about a lot at the time of writing mm. but mm. no I understand I mean I think when you think about um the position of women over the years I mean it's always been that it's a struggle to uh, to earn more than your male counterparts and you know that's still even relevant now I mean it, it goes way back to the, the complete codependency of women, on, um, particularly women with children and women that are married. But with this novel in particular, I found the youth side of it quite refreshing and I often wonder with the generations that are coming post me to I think about relationships like that. Is, is that something that you thought about? As in, in terms of the the power, like new, yeah, like a new generation of women. Yes, you mean? yes, the new generation of women and how they deal with relationships like this. Yes, no, it, it, it was, and I think something that I that I was really interested in um, that I was thinking about a lot when I was writing it was Anna is facing this conflict, which is that she is both an kind of ambitious young woman, woman, and she's embedded in this society. She's surrounded by other young women who um, are pretty like politically aware. They're feminist. Um, they're kind of engaged with feminist discourse of the time, um, of our time. But she also like has these has deep has a kind of deep emotional need to be with somebody, to be with a man. Um, so I was really interested in that in that conflict. So the fact that you know sometimes the things that we really believe are strongly held beliefs or the you know, the ideals that we have about how we live our life actually don't correspond to the things that we want um, and kind of how you how you navigate that. So how you can it's be... Not even, it's not even, sorry, Imogen, just to interrupt, it's not even what you want sometimes. It's the expectation of what people think mm. you want. Can yeah. You? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, something that I talk about a bit look at a little bit in the novel is the kind of some of the some of the contradictions and some of the things that the female characters you know, say they want and then what they actually do so like a character like Laurie who kind of thinks that she wants to be this free woman who doesn't need a man um but then you know also actually gets very upset when things go wrong in her romantic life mm. but I think 
I uh, I have been financially independent all my life, um, which is great, and it's all been, you know, through work. And sometimes I think that people find that threatening. Mm. Mm. And you yeah. touch a little bit on that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, I think that something that while Max has, you know, does have the power in in their relationship in lots of ways that really count, you know, he's older, he's richer, he's much more secure, he's he's less isolated than her. Um, I think there's also a sense of his jealousy of her um, and that he feels he feels threatened by her. Maybe that's less less that he feels threatened by her financially, but he feels threatened by her because she has a talent and she has drive and ambition and that's something that he doesn't he doesn't really have and I think that that is that is something that people find really threatening in women and 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 particularly women who say that that is their priority you know Mm. so that they you know the other things their life are less important to them than than pursuing their vocation Mm. a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So I know that you... You wrote a, a previous book and, and you decided that that wasn't fit for publication or other people decided for you. But as we say, it's practice. So then you, in a way, you've got to get back on that bike, don't you, and have another go. And I, I'd imagine that is, it's not easy, is it? Because the investment that goes into writing is quite huge. I mean, it could be years long. I mean, I think that, well, so the first the first thing that I did, which I think, with hindsight, I think it's a mistake, but I think it's probably a mistake that a lot of people make, which is that I went back to the thing that I'd written and I sort of desperately tried for a number of, I mean, quite a long time, number of months, possibly even a year, to try and think about what I might be able to do with that material instead of moving on. So I trawled through it and I tried to find a kind of kernel of something else in it and I tried to rewrite bits of it, but in a different type of book. And yeah, it, it just wasn't working. And eventually I shelved it. And I mean, I, I knew that I definitely wanted to write something else. I definitely wanted to give writing another go. I, I wasn't ready to give up at that point, but I did find, I'd found the process of starting something else really, really difficult. And what I did was um, I decided that I was going to think about, so, so one of the major, well, I think probably the major problem in the previous thing I'd written was that it didn't really have a plot. Um, it was all quite kind of disconnected, lots of series of uh, like vignettes, basically. So I decided I was going to have a look at a writer, the work of a writer that I really admire um, and and see how they'd written their book, like have a go at coming up with a sort of, updated version of that book following the structure of it 
Um, and I, I, th- I thought of doing this kind of more as a writing exercise than thinking that it would actually turn into anything. But the book I chose was um, this book, Voyage in the Dark by Jean Rees, which was written in 1934. And it's about, her, her novel is about a young, a young woman, also called Anna, so I used quite a lot of her names, who's a chorus girl and she is... Um, totally isolated in London she's just moved there and she then um, meets a wealthy old man he begins to support her financially and she um, as a result drifts away from kind of respectable society so that's the basic premise of it and I then started to think about how I might update that and transplant it into the modern day and eventually I struck on this idea of making my character an opera singer so making my character um, also a singer but like a different type of singing um, having her be somebody who was really struggling to get by in that creative industry and then having having an older man come in and kind of derail that for her. Um, so that was really how I, how I got started. And I think like having that other book as a model, while like later on in the creative process, I did slightly abandon it. <laughs> so um, certainly at the beginning, um, I really, like I the first few scenes of my novel are structured kind of exactly the same as the first few scenes in Reese's novel. And I just I just found that really helpful because we're all writers. Well, what I dread anyway is the blank page. So like just having no idea what you're doing. But that gave me, um, yeah, it gave me structure. It gave me something yeah, to, to keep going. So that was the first way that I got started again. But at the time I was, so I was living in Switzerland and I was teaching close to full time in a secondary school there. Um, so I didn't have a huge amount of time. So actually while I was there, I, I didn't write that much of it. So I, the, like the idea kind of developed in my mind. Um, and I had this one day where I had a really long break between lessons. Um, and I used to go and like lock myself in a classroom um, at one end of the school and write. So I wrote, actually, I wrote the first chapter of the novel in that classroom. Um, and it's still pretty similar to how it was then. Um, but I was struggling to get it off the ground because I just didn't have very much time. And then I applied to do a creative writing course at Curtis Brown, um, which I then got a place on. And I went and did it the following September. It was six months. And during that period, that's when I really made a lot of headway on the draft. Um, and that was also when I when I kind of it was a really important thing for me to do at that time, I think, because it gave me permission to see myself as a writer. And before that, you know, having written another book that had been rejected, having, you know, been trying to write this book for a year, but not really getting anywhere with it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I felt very at sea. And having a course just gave me like, gave me the structure, um, focus, deadlines, but also that kind of identity as a writer, which felt really important. At that Absolutely. Because I was going to ask you along the way, did you have anyone reading what you were writing as you were going? Not at all until I did the course. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's hard. So it is. And also, I mean, I I was I was so precious about not letting people read my writing. And I think it comes back to that sort of perfectionist thing, you know, the same thing I had at 18, where I thought if I don't write something that's perfect, then it's you know not worth me writing. And I think doing the quarters course at Curtis Brown really kind of helped me out of that way of thinking because you know the first time I submitted work I remember being sort of terribly prickly about anyone suggesting anything um, and then I realized that actually obviously having people read and say their experiences of reading is really really helpful um, and after that course I stayed um, good friends with uh, like a, a few people on it and we kept sharing work and with one woman in particular we swapped a chapter a week for the summer afterwards and that's actually how I finished the book. Because I, I mean you know I'm one of these people that really needs to have people around me to get work done. Yeah, 
I know that sounds strange, but it's actually quite true. And I've only just thought about that now. I need people, not to say keep going or anything like that, but I need, you're right, I need to know that I'm going to deliver something, that somebody's going to look at it, that, you know, somebody might have an opinion about it. And when you don't have that, that's kind of working in a void, isn't it? It really is. And also, you know, when you're writing a novel, it's such a long, such yes. a long work. I think it was, was it Anne Patchett who said the thing about how writing a novel is like going for like a long swim mm. in the ocean. So you mm. just have to keep going. You can't see what's in front of you. Mm. Um, and I think that's so, that's so true. And, you know, the thing that makes that sort of endurance test easier is having kind of markers. And if you don't have that, you're just totally, you're totally operating yeah, in, in a void. Um, and you also feel like you'll never finish as well. Yeah, that's um, right. Because sometimes, sometimes I've heard authors say, well, finally, their editor said, stop, you're finished. And they needed somebody else to tell them that. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that there's a, there's a sense that kind of you need so for me, something that's really helpful about having people reading my work is that I, it makes me think, okay, so by this time next week, I've got to produce something that I'm happy with somebody else reading. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have that, then I, I'll, I'll say indefinitely, oh, this isn't very good. I'll keep, I'll keep fiddling with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need that sense of external pressure, I think, and, and an external deadline. Yeah. Um, yeah, and somebody to tell me what's working as well. Now, um, I think, so, and I've heard this with people, well, you know, and even with myself when I come, up, come off a podcast, sometimes you know that you've nailed something. Sometimes it feels right. Everything about that project just feels right and you know it's going to be good. Is that how you felt with this book versus the last book? <laughs> um, <laughs> do you mean when I was actually writing it or afterwards? Well, I guess, did you have a feeling, you know, people say that about film sets as well. They say, you know, that it all felt right and, you know, at the end of it you got a great movie and if it didn't feel right, you didn't get a great movie. Did you feel that? I did in some way. It's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> when I was writing it, there were many, many moments where I thought this is totally rubbish and I need to stop yeah. Yeah. and I just need to start something new and I need to throw most of it away. But I think that I always, I think you have a sort of, fuzzy tingly feeling around an idea that feels promising and I think even you know throughout the whole writing process every time I returned to that like to the initial kernel of my idea I'd still get that feeling I'd still feel like there was something in it yeah but I remember really really horribly clearly after I'd finished the novel um, I put it away in a drawer for six weeks came back to it one Sunday, I sat down and read it through. And when I finished, I thought, this is awful. Oh, no, <laughs> I thought you were going to say this is great. <laughs> no, I thought, I, I, gen- I, I, thought it, I thought it was so bad. Um, but, you know, then I, then, I, then I edited it and I, you know, I figured out what I, what I thought was bad about it. Um, but, yeah, I remember that, feel- <laughs> that very sad feeling very clearly. Um, but it, but it, I think it's always... It's always it's always like that, that you have this kernel of an idea that feels to you promising and sort of full of life. And then it's transplanting it onto the page and how much of it actually, you actually managed to get across. And I think that the process of writing and the process of editing is just moving everything closer to uh, that original idea that you had. I don't know if you ever get there completely, um, but you can move pretty close, I think, I hope. So when it was accepted this time, tell me about that moment and tell me how you felt. 
it was, I mean, it was all, it was all totally surreal, actually. So I did this course at Curtis Brown and at the end of the course, we um, had the opportunity to submit the first 3000 words and then a synopsis to all of the agents at Curtis Brown and CNW, which I did. And then my, well, my agent, Emma, um, was interested in it from that. Um, so it was a totally different experience from the first time round because I, I didn't have the kind of silence and rejection. I mean, I was, I was extremely lucky. And what that then meant was that me and Emma worked on, she, she read my pages as I was writing over the next six, six months or so, which meant that, I mean, so when I finished, when I finished my final, final draft after I'd read it through and thought it was terrible and (laughs) rewrote parts of it, um, I sent it to her and I was kind of, I was fully expecting that we'd be doing, you know, draft after draft at this point and that, you know, there would be another six months or a year to the process um, but she got back to me with a few tiny edits that took me about a week or two weeks and then submitted it. Then after that, I mean, yeah, it, it got taken on really, like really quickly. Um, and it was just, it was totally surreal. I actually, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't really believe it. I, I think I still, it still hasn't quite sunk in <laughs> because actually it, ha- it happened like, um, two weeks before the first lockdown in London. Yeah. Um, so it was sort of this whole thing that just totally, you know, absolutely changed my life happened. And then the whole world suddenly went totally crazy. Um, so having those two things happen simultaneously was just like incredibly surreal. So the idea that the book is going to come out and be in hard copy must be just so exciting for you. It is. It's, it's incredible. I mean, just holding a copy of the book when it arrived, I think, a week or a week or two ago. And it's, yeah, it's such an amazing feeling. Um, you know, I've wanted, I've wanted to have a book published since I was little. So it's kind of, it, it's one of those things, you know, you never really think that you're going to achieve that kind of childhood dream. So the feeling of having achieved it is just incredible. Um, I also love the cover of the book. Um, do you feel like you're a writer now? What's your Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do yeah I do actually I mean there was a, there was a moment it's it's funny because that um you know for, for most of my 20s I always had like felt a bit awkward when people asked me what I did because mm. I did so many different things um you know I was trying to be a singer I was trying to be a writer I was doing all sorts of casual work it, it actually just feels so bizarre to just have a kind of clear answer to that question and and yeah I, I do feel like a writer now um I, I mean I speak to many um young authors like yourself and it just energizes me because you know it's the next generation of writers here you are coming up um yeah. and you know it's book one and hopefully there'll be so many do you know um I'm going to tell you something I don't know if this is bad news or if you already know but often when I speak to writers I ask them if it gets easier and not one person says that it does <laughs> did you know that <laughs> that does not surprise me at all um I have to say writing book two um which is not it's not finished yet but I'm, I'm working on it has in many ways felt a lot more difficult than writing the first book yeah. um I think it, it's such a you know while obviously when I was writing book one I hoped it would be read there is a sense that it's your kind of private world that you're creating and that um, that gives you so much freedom. Whereas obviously, you know, writing a second book, which I know people are going to read. Uh, yeah, I, I find it slightly, it slightly, I don't know, intimidates me or gets in the way a little bit of that, that sense of like a private world. And I'm sure, 
I mean, I would, I would hope that you get used to that, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, many um, authors have said that to me, that their first was special and dreamy in a way that, you know, they mm. were writing it with no expectations whatsoever. But once mm. they got to their second, after their first one was published, then, yes, they're experiencing the same concerns, I think, that you are, that now you're writing yeah. an audience and what so-and-so going to say when they, they read this. You know, it's out there in, in the world, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it does also, I mean, it feels to me, I thought having written one book, I, I would think, you know, I have a method for writing a book now, but actually it feels like a totally new process. I, feel, I definitely feel like I've never written a book before. Well, we're out of time, Imogen, but I've got to say congratulations. And I I feel so privileged um, to be able to speak to young writers like yourself and to know that you're going to be the stars of the future. It's wonderful. Congratulations. The book is called A Very Nice Girl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play, or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.